Hey, Professor Stanley here, and I am back with another podcast. Today's date is January the 1st of 2020, and I'm going to go over concepts from Chapter 4 of your book. And this is going to be a quick review of Psychology 101, these psychological concepts, theories, and therapies. I'm going to do my best to present them in some sort of cohesive format, but there's no way we could possibly cover all these in their entirety So we're going to hit on them quickly, and hopefully you're going to get what you need out of it, okay? So first of all, let's talk about Sigmund Freud. I guess I should start by saying a theory is just basically somebody's idea of what an explanation of why a phenomenon occurs is. And it consists of a set of like statements and, you know, concepts and things of that nature, diagrams maybe, that really represent how people believe that Um, a phenomenon progresses or occurs. So the first one is Freud's psychoanalytic psychoanalytic theory of personality. And with this psychoanalytic theory of personality development, Freud looked at how he believed that the human personality developed through psychosexual stages. And he went ahead and defined those stages for for us. But the big point is, you know, some of the things that you may be familiar with are his terms the id, the superego, and the ego. And he looked at these as three parts of the unconscious mind that were always in conflict with one another. The id, of course, was the most primitive of the three structures, and it was concerned with the instant gratification of basic physical needs, and it operates entirely unconsciously. So, for example, um, one that I read recently is that if you were to walk past a stranger who was eating ice cream, your id would want the ice cream and would take the ice cream for itself. It didn't know or care that it was rude to take it or that it was wrong to take something belonging to someone else. It would only care that it wanted the ice cream right then. The superego, on the other hand, excuse me, is concerned with social rules and morals. And it's similar to what people call their conscience or their moral compass. It develops as a child learns what their culture considers to be right and wrong. And if your superego, again, were to walk past the same stranger, same ice cream, it would not take the ice cream because it would believe that it was not the right thing to do and it would know that it was rude. Now, however, if both your id and your superego were involved, your id might be strong enough to override your superego's concern and you would still take the ice cream, but afterward, you would feel guilt and shame over your actions. So the cycle of, you know, desire and guilt and shame when you have the conflict with the superego is something that you do see people participate in quite often. Um, the ego, though, acts as kind of like the, the part of the personality that negotiates between the id and the superego. So, for example, let's say that you still wanted that ice cream and your id wants you to take it, but your superego knows it's wrong. Your ego would say, okay, we're going to put this off for 10 minutes. We're going to go get our own ice cream. We're going to still satisfy the id, but we're going to make the superego happy as well. So this ego part is the part that helps to resolve these conflicts that occur between the id and the superego. So anyway, you can see that the ego is the part that probably maybe functions more on a conscious level, whereas the id and the superego are more unconscious many times. Okay, so let's go on to the psychosexual stages of development. According to Freud, there were five stages, and they occur at different ages. His first stage, of course, being the oral stage. That occurs from zero to 18 months of age. 
And it's, you know, when you think about it, you do see infants all the time putting things in their mouth. You can see how he could see this as the oral stage. And this is when, you know, the behavior that indicates resolution is when the hunger and the thirst is met. And if there's no resolution, then you have fixation that develops. And Freud would have described things that involve the oral cavity, like smoking, overeating, drinking, and nail-biting, as a fixation that occurred as a result of a poor resolution to this stage. Then you have the anal stage, which is from 18 months to 3 years. And this is when, you know, infants are, of course, concerned with developing control of their bowel and bladder. So you can see why he would think of it this way. And this is when, if somebody were to appropriately, you know, have resolution to this stage, they would be able to interact with others um, and be toilet trained, be able to be with others. And if they became fixated in this stage, then he would describe it as having hostility and defiance, difficulty relating to authority figures, preoccupation with rules and rigidity. You might have heard the popular expression, you know, of someone being anal. That's because they hold something very tightly and they don't let it go and they're kind of preoccupied with rules and very rigid. That's where that comes from. Then we have the phallic stage from three to six years, which is, according to Freud, the task is identity with identifying with the same-sex parent and developing a sexual identity. According to Freud, the resolution of this phase would be you'd be able to identify gender, maintain mutual and favorable relationships with the same-sex parents, and a poor resolution to this phase would result in sexual problems and an inability in marriage relationships. Then the latency phase is from 6 to 12 years, focus on same-sex peers, able to have good relationships with peers for, you, for the resolution and for the fixation struggles with relationships. And then the genital phase from 13 to 20, focus on opposite-sex relationships, resolution, able to have relationships with peers of both sexes, and fixation, adolescence, having direct to direct sexual urges onto opposite-sex peers, and primary focus of pleasure is in the genitals. Anyway, the big point that I wanted you to get out of Freud is that his stages of development are psychosexual in nature, and this description of the id, the superego, and the ego. Interestingly, one of our things that is very relevant to what we will be talking about with our patients are the concepts of countertransference and transference that Freud described. And these are the outcomes that can occur within the patient and therapist or patient and nurse relationship. If you have transference, the patient will may attribute feelings regarding another person onto you or onto a therapist or other provider of care. So basically, it's when a patient looks at you and they say, you know, you remind me of my mother. And because you remind them of their mother, they begin to interact with you as if you were their mother. So, for example, if this was an unhealthy relationship, they might start to start to fight with you. Or if it was a healthy relationship, they might cling to you and seek comfort from you that they may not seek in an appropriate way. And then countertransference is when we, as a nurse, therapist, provider of care, anybody that uh, interacts with this patient as a provider status, actually has feelings that they, the patient reminds them of someone. And they, in turn, will actually start to deal with that patient as if they were the person that they're thinking about. And so we have to be very self-aware in our interactions with patients to explore these issues of transference and counter-transference 
and especially countertransference when we realize it's happening, to be able to take a step back and look at what are what we're doing and make that into a more appropriate therapeutic interaction. I can tell you this is something that I occasionally struggle with when it comes to patients with borderline personality who remind me of my adopted daughter. I will tend sometimes to react to those patients differently than I do other patients until I do a self-check and realize what I'm doing. So first, let's talk about object relations theory, and it is based on psychodynamic theory, but instead of looking at the biological drives and the formation of personality, instead it suggests that the way people relate to others in situations in their adult lives is shaped by family experiences during infancy. So if an adult experienced abuse or neglect in infancy, then they would expect similar behavior from others who remind them of the neglectful or abusive parent from their past. And these images of people and events turn into objects in the unconsciousness that the self carries into adulthood. And they're used to predict other people's behavior in their social relationships and interactions. Now I'm going to go ahead and move on. You can certainly read a little bit more about that in your book, and you can read about it online if you're more interested in that. But let's go ahead and move on to Erickson, who is one of our most important theorists that we're going to talk about, and it's his theory of psychosocial development. And it focuses on the achievement and mastery of life challenges that occur at certain time periods. So basically... Erickson was talking about how, you know, the individual themselves has responsibility in meeting these stages, but they are, of course, influenced by the environment and by the caregiver. But it's still up to the individual, not the caregiver, to solve the crisis that presents in each developmental stage. Now, they will progress onto other developmental stages, but how you meet a previous stage is definitely going to influence your ability to meet other stages. So when let's start with the first one, for example. His first one is trust versus mistrust from birth to one year of age. And the desired outcome for the stage is trust in self, parents, and the world. If they fail to meet this developmental stage, they will still proceed into another stage, but it is definitely going to affect their ability to meet the later stages. So for example, if a person never learns to trust and instead they develop mistrust out of this first stage, then when they get into intimacy versus isolation in early adulthood, they're going to have trouble forming intimate relationships because they struggle with this very first stage of trust versus mistrust. So Erickson is pretty important for that reason, and we will be asking you throughout the year to, to identify the developmental stage that someone is in. Usually this is going to be based on Erickson when you do this. Now, I've already gone over Maslow's hierarchy of needs with the pyramid example where it talks about, you know, the very basic needs being at the bottom of the pyramid, which are, you know, safety and security, food, clothing, shelter, and you gradually move up the pyramid and that you can't really move up the pyramid until those very basic needs are met. I will say that Maslow is extremely important as a theorist because when you start to think about the world in general, this is how the world works. If you have children who come into school and their very basic needs are not being met and they're hungry and they're thirsty and they're cold, they're not going to be able to achieve higher levels of learning because of the fact that their very basic needs are not met. We have to be able to progress up that pyramid. And so there's a lot of discussion in like, um, you know, when you talk about social 
justice and social um, programs, that the goal being to equalize people on up the pyramid so that learning can occur, so a child can eventually, in adulthood, move out of the very basic need stage for themselves. That's why we feed children at school. We make sure that they're not hungry. We make sure that they have what they need so that they can go ahead and accomplish these higher levels of that pyramid. Anyway, so we'll go on and move forward. The next one that we are going to talk about is Kohlberg and his moral theory of development. Okay, so let's talk about Kohlberg, who based his work largely on Jean Piaget's theory of moral development, or moral judgment, sorry, for children. And basically, he focused on the thinking process that occurs when one decides whether a behavior is either right or wrong, and how that progresses through the developmental stages. So he broke this down into three levels and six stages of moral development, the first being the pre-conventional stage. And at the pre-conventional stage, morality is externally controlled. Rules are imposed by authority figures, and they basically conform in order to avoid punishment or receive a reward. In the first stage, the punishment and obedience orientation, behavior is determined by consequences. The individual will behave in order to avoid punishment. In stage two, it is called instrumental purpose orientation. And in this stage, behavior is determined again by consequences, but the individual focuses on receiving rewards or satisfying personal needs. Level two is the conventional level, and this is where most adolescents and many adults function. At the conventional level, conformity to social rules remains important. However, the emphasis shifts from self-interest to relationships with other people and social systems. So basically, in this stage, the individual is striving to support rules that are set out by others such as parents, peers, and the government in order to win the approval or to maintain social order. So in stage three, the good boy, nice girl orientation behavior is determined by social approval. This is when you see teenagers and, and adolescents who many times will do what their peer group wants them to do rather than what their adults want them to do because they want to be perceived by their peer group as a good person and win the affection and approval of others. If they progress onto stage four, this is the law and order orientation. Social rules and laws determine behavior. The individual then will take into consideration a larger perspective than like that of societal laws. And moral decision-making becomes more than consideration of close ties to others. The individual believes that rules and laws maintain social order, and that is worth preserving. <clears throat> the level three is the post-conventional or principled level. And at the post-conventional level, the individual moves beyond the perspective of his or her own society. Morality is defined in terms of abstract principles and values that apply to all situations in society, and the individual attempts to take the perspective of all individuals. In stage five, the social contract orientation, an individual's rights determine behavior. They view laws and rules as flexible tools for improving human purpose. And so given the right situation, there are exceptions to rules. When laws are not consistent with individual rights and the interests of the majority, it does not bring about good for people and alternatives should be considered. In stage six, we have universal ethical principle orientation. And this is the highest stage of functioning. And Colbert says that some individuals will never reach this level. And I think we definitely see that even in society, some never get beyond even the most basic of levels. 
But at this stage, the appropriate action is determined by one's self-chosen ethical principles of conscience. These principles are abstract and universal in application. This type of reasoning involves taking the perception of every person or group that could potentially be affected by the decision. So those are Kohlberg's stages of moral development. And like I said, he did base his work on the work of Piaget, who was the person who authored cognitive theory. Piaget used cognitive theory to talk about a focus on internal knowing and thinking principles of individuals. And he really looked at the development of someone intellectually through the different stages. He talked a lot about schemas that would develop in the memory. And he suggested that children move through four different stages of mental development. His theory focuses not only on understanding how they acquire knowledge, but also understanding the nature of intelligence. His four stages are basically the sensory motor stage, which was from birth to two years. And in this stage, the infant would know the world through their movements and sensation and learn about the world through basic actions such as sucking, grasping, looking, listening, and learn that things continue to exist even though they cannot be seen. Object permanence. Now, that's a big concept. Object permanence means basically that, you know, even though something isn't seen, it's still there. Like, for example, mama, you know, while she may not be present with them in the environment, she is still, you know, exists, and they might miss her, and that's when you see them start to cry and have separation anxiety. They see themselves during this stage of development as separate beings from the people and objects around them and realize that their actions can have you know, other, can cause other things to happen in the world around them. Like if they cry, someone responds, or if they drop the ball, then the dog picks it up, whatever. All right, <clears throat> next is the pre-operational stage, which he described as from two to seven years. And in this stage, children begin to think symbolically and learn to use words and pictures to represent objects. They will tend to become ego, tend to be egocentric and struggle to see things from the perspective of others very egocentric. While they're getting better with language and thinking, they still tend to think about things in very concrete terms. Um, so, for example, an example that I read is that, say that somebody took a lump of clay and they divided it into two equal pieces and gave the child a choice between the two pieces of clay and say that one is rolled into a ball while the others are smashed into a flat pancake. Since the flat shape looks larger, a pre-operational phase child will likely choose that piece other than the other one, even though they're exactly the same size because it looks larger. The concrete operational stage occurs from age 7 to 11 years of age. And um, during this stage, children begin to think logically about concrete events. They begin to understand the concept of conservation. And like, for example, the amount of liquid in a short wide cup is equal to that in a tall skinny glass or that flat pancake lump of clay is equal to that ball lump of clay. Their thinking will become more logical and organized, but still very concrete. And they will begin to use inductive logic or reasoning. Um, and while children are still very concrete and literal in their thinking at this point in development, they do become much more adept at using logic. The egocentrism of the previous stage begins to disappear little by little, as kids become better at thinking about how other people might view a situation. And um, at this point in development, they do still tend to struggle with abstract and hypothetical concepts. That is in the last stage of development, which is the formal operational stage. 
And this formal operational stage occurs, occurs from ages 12 and up. The major characteristics and developmental changes in this stage are that they begin to think abstractly and reason about hypothetical problems. They have an abstract thought that emerges. They begin to think more about moral, philosophical, ethical, social, and political issues that requires theoretical and abstract reasoning. They begin to use deductive logic or reasoning from a general principle to a specific information. So basically, an increase in logic is the big thing. The ability to think about abstract ideas and situations and to reason through these. Okay, so here's some important concepts from Piaget's theory. The first has to do with schemas, and these definitions are in your book as well. A schema describes both the mental and physical actions involved in understanding and knowing. They are categories for knowledge that help us to interpret and understand the world. And in Piaget's view, it included both a category of knowledge and the process of obtaining that knowledge. As experience happens, the new information is then used to modify, to add to, or to change previously existing schemas. So, and then there's this process called assimilation. This is the process where we take in the new information and we incorporate that into our already existing schemas. This is known as assimilation. This process is somewhat subjective because we tend to modify experiences and information slightly to fit in with our own pre-existing beliefs. Accommodation is the next term, and this involves changing or altering, altering our existing schemas in light of new information. So as we're confronted with some new information, we assimilate some new information, then we then are going to alternate, alter our schema based upon the new information. Equilibrium, Piaget believed that all children try to strike a balance that's between the new information assimilation and the accommodation or changing our schemas to fit that new information. And this is achieved through a mechanism that he calls equilibrium. As a child progresses through the stages of cognitive development, it is important to maintain a balance between applying previous knowledge, assimilation, and changing behaviors to account for new information or accommodation. So those are the big terms, I believe, in your book. Let's see if I've hit them all. Adaptation, assimilation, schemas, accommodation, and equilibrium. So those are our big points that are related to Piaget's theory and stages of cognitive development. Okay, so now we're going to talk about classical conditioning, which was the brainchild of John Watson, based upon the work of Pavlov. And Watson's the one that's famous for saying to give him any, you know, a group of children who were healthy and he could turn them into anything he wanted through using this conditioned response. So in classical conditioning, there are three stages of conditioning and at each stage, the stimuli and response are given specific scientific terms. So stage one is the before conditioning. At this stage, an unconditional, unconditioned stimulus produces an unconditioned response. So this is like a natural progression of stimulus response within a person. For example, um, noise produces a startle reflex. That is a natural response. And then you're going to add in a neutral stimulus. This could be a person, object, place, etc. And in stage two, you're going to use this neutral stimulus associated with the unconditioned stimulus, and you're going to produce a conditioned stimulus. So basically... During the stage, a stimulus which produces no response or is neutral is associated with the unconditioned stimulus, at which point it now becomes the conditioned stimulus. 
So an example I read is um, an unconditioned stimulus might be a stomach virus, and it produces an unconditioned response of nausea. So in stage two, this stomach virus might be associated with eating a certain food, such as chocolate. After that, you get this unconditioned response, which is nausea, right? So from then on, this neutral stimulus will then produce a conditioned response of nausea. You have taught the body to respond to chocolate by having the stomach virus associated with eating the food of chocolate. So that's an example, and it's a very, very simple example. Of course, Pavlov is well known for his um, work with dogs and, you know, producing salivation in the dogs um, through, you know, associating it with a bell and things of that nature. He's also well known for his, you know, work with little Albert, which was a nine-month-old infant that he used, you know, this unconditioned stimulus of, or this uh, neutral stimulus of a rabbit and then this natural unconditioned stimulus of a loud noise and this unconditioned response of fear of the loud noise. And then he associated it with the rabbit. So it was something that he did to, you know, create a conditioned response. So then this child developed a fear of the rabbits. Obviously an unethical experiment, but anyway, it's interesting how you can use this. And you may remember a Big Bang Theory episode where Sheldon was using chocolate to reinforce, you know, Penny's behaviors and you know he was using the work of Pavlov and conditioning in addition to the next theorist we're going to talk about which is B.F. Skinner. Okay Skinner was big on apparent conditioning. An operant, apparent or operant conditioning is a method of learning that occurs through a system of rewards and punishment for behavior. In this case an individual makes an association between a particular behavior and a consequence and uh, he used this, let's see what I want to say about this. He used the term law of effect, which is reinforcement behavior, which is reinforced, tends to be repeated. Let me say that again. Behavior, which is reinforced, tends to be repeated. That is called law of effect. And he conducted experiments using animals. And in fact, he would place them in a box and use, you know, different things in order to get it, to get behaviors to be modified. He used neutral operants or responses from the environment that neither increased nor decreased the probability of a behavior being repeated. He used reinforcers, which were responses from the environment that increased the probability of a behavior being repeated. And he used reinforcers that can be either positive or negative. And he used punishments, which are responses from the environment that decreased the likelihood of a behavior being repeated or punishes or weakens the behavior. So in the case of positive reinforcement, he would put a hungry rat in his box, and the box contained a lever on the side and the rat, and as the rat moved about the box, it would accidentally knock the lever. Immediately, as it did, a food pellet would drop into the container next to the lever. The rats would quickly learn to go straight to the lever and after a few times of being put in the box. The consequences of receiving food if they pressed the lever ensured that they would repeat the action over and over and over again. Positive reinforcement strengthens the behavior by providing a consequence that an individual finds rewarding. So, for example, if, you know, you, I were to give you $5 every time you did your homework and you came to class prepared, you're more likely to repeat this behavior in the future. Now, negative reinforcement 
is the removal of an unpleasant reinforcer, excuse me, <clears throat> and it can also strengthen behavior. Um, let me give you an example of this. So if you did not complete your homework, you had to give me $5. Next time, you would get your homework done because you wouldn't want to have to pay the $5. Thus, I would be strengthening the behavior of completing your homework. So Skinner showed how both not positive and negative reinforcers could be important in the environment in order to reinforce behaviors. The next one is a punishment. Punishment is described as the opposite of reinforcement. And so, um, like reinforcement, punishment can work either by directly applying an unpleasant stimulus, like, for example, with his rats, he applied a shock, or by removing a potentially rewarding stimulus. For instance, if you take someone's pocket money to punish undesirable behavior, like you remove your children's allowance or something like that. There are many problems with using punishment, such as punished behavior is not forgotten, it's suppressed. The behavior return, returns when the punishment is no longer present. It causes increased aggression, shows us that aggression is a way to cope with problems. It creates fear that can generate an undesirable behavior, like a fear of school. If you have a negative you know, a punishment at school, you're going to fear that. And it does not necessarily guide toward the, adult, the directed behavior. So anyway, we do use a lot of these types of things in children's psych especially because of the fact that behavioral modification can be highly effective. So what you might see being done in children's psych is, you know, you have a maybe a behavior that's not a good behavior. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to use reinforcers, you know, like when they somebody does a good job on their homework, for instance, you praise them or you give them points or, you know, if they um, don't do a good job on your homework, you might deduct points or something like that. Here again, the punisher part can be increased aggression because sometimes when you're trying to get that positive behavior, like you want the child to do their homework and you develop a point plan and you give them five points when they do their homework and then they can use that to spend on some sort of like activity. If you use this punisher or this deduction of the five points, you might see the child go into a full meltdown and have to go into timeout or, you know, have to receive an injection or, you know, really, really have a hard time. You can see that sometimes these punishers might actually keep you from reaching the desired outcomes of your behavior. So it's much better if you're going to do a point plan to give five points for when they do their homework, but not to give anything for when they don't do their homework, rather than to punish by taking away the points. Okay, so those are just some thoughts, and they do use that a lot in children's psych, so I wanted to be sure and to go over that with you, just kind of how we could use this positive and negative reinforcement. Please read more about it in your book, because it's very interesting. Um, it does talk about interpersonal theory, which was developed by Sullivan, and it's based on the belief that a person's Interactions with other people, especially significant others, determine their sense of security and sense of self and the diamondisms <laughs> that motivate their behavior. Um, for Sullivan, personality is the product of a long series of stages in which the individual gradually develops good feelings toward others and a sense of a good me toward himself or herself. The individual also learns how to ward off anxiety and correct distorted perceptions of other people, and learns to verify his or her own ideas through consensual validation, which is where, you know, you're seeking validation for others to see if you both agree with the same things. 
and above all, to seek out effective interpersonal relationships on a mature level. That is the interpersonal theory. And let's go through change theory really quickly. Da, 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 da. Tried to find where I put my thing I wanted to do about change theory. Okay, change theory is actually very relevant to nursing and it's developed by Lewin. And it's quite important because it has three major concepts. The concepts are driving forces, restraining forces, and equilibrium. Driving forces are those that push in a direction change in how it can occur. They facilitate change because they push the patient in a desired direction. They cause a shift in the equilibrium towards change. And restraining forces are those forces that counter the driving forces. They hinder change because they push the patient in the opposite direction. They cause a shift in the equilibrium that opposes change. Equilibrium is a state of being where driving forces equal restraining forces and no change occurs. It can be raised or lowered by changes that occur between the driving and restraining forces. So basically, there are three stages in this nursing theory. There's unfreezing, changing, and refreezing. Unfreezing is the process which involves finding a method of making it possible for a person to let go of an old pattern that was somehow counterproductive. It is necessary to overcome the strains of individual resistance and group conformity. There are three methods that can lead to the achievement of unfreezing. The first is to increase the driving forces to direct behavior away from an existing situation or status quo. The second is decreasing the restraining forces that negatively affect the movement from the existing, existing equilibrium. And the third is finding a combination of the first two methods. So basically, in unfreezing, you know, if you're looking at driving forces and you're looking at these restraining forces, for example, say you have a diabetic patient. A driving force might be that, you know, they're starting to develop peripheral neuropathy. Maybe their blood sugar is consistently high. They're not getting the control that they once did. They're having to give themselves daily shots. They don't like that. Those are all driving forces that may move them away from, you know, maybe a... Um, poor adherence to diet. Then you may have the restraining forces, and that would be that their wife is not supportive, that she's bringing home sweets all the time, she's not helping them on to plan their menu, she's eating things in front of them. Those are things that would be things that would move away from the change that we want to happen. Then we have the existing equilibrium would be that no change occurs, so basically what we're doing is we're finding a combination of these, in unfreezing, we're finding a combination to try to drive change that will work. Um, so in the change state, which is also called moving to a new level or movement, involves a process of change in thought, feeling, behavior, or actions, and in some way is liberated, in some way becomes more liberating and more productive. The refreezing stage is establishing the change as the new habit so it becomes the new standard operating procedure. Without the final stage, it is easy for the patient to go back to the old habits. So you can see how identifying these factors and working with the patient to eliminate and, you know, those, those negative factors and to, you know, increase the positive factors or the driving forces are going to really help then be successful in creating a new adherent norm.
If you'd like to take a look in your book on box 4.1 on page 75, they have some good stages of change that have been developed by theorists, and I think it would help you to understand this process better. So please be sure and take a look at that point in your book. So now we're going to take a look specifically at some nursing theories, which focus on aspects of nursing care and help to explain behavior and roles of nurses. And so we're going to go ahead and continue with that. So I'm going to pause this segment and record that segment. I must say that when it comes to nursing theories and the therapies that are discussed in the book and how they begin to define psychiatric nursing practice, I feel ill-equipped to do that within a space of a short lecture. I like the way the book goes all the way back to Florence Nightingale, however, and her environmental theory and talks about how she stressed the importance of internal strength of the patient and the role of the nurse to help in promotion and maintenance of the health and wellness of the patient. So what we see with Florence Nightingale is that from the very beginning of nursing theory, we already have this concept of the idea that has been further crystallized in future nursing theorists that the nurse builds upon and facilitates health and wellness through the use of already existing strengths within the patient. Now with Leninger, she's also discussed in the book, we see that in the theory of transcultural care, she goes on to talk about the universality of culture in health and wellness development and gives us the perspective that we must provide care that is congruent with the individual's beliefs and values and norms. So if you ask yourself the question, how effective are we really going to be in helping a patient to achieve wellness if we ask them to go against their personal culture and belief system? This is why we must operate within the evidence-based that we have of cultural competence and facilitate development of cultural competence in ourselves and in others. Now, I was going to tell you, I've already prepared a a lecture on Piplau that you're going to be encountering in the next couple of weeks, so I'm not going to spend any time on that, on the nurse-patient interaction, and uh, I also won't go much further into the title model at this point, because we are going to be talking about that throughout the semester. However, I do want you to go and read through the Ten Commitments found on page 78 in your book, or you can go to the title model website. And be very familiar with these 10 commitments that are located there because they really are a guide for how we are going to interact with our patients and how we're going to care for them and how we're going to approach them where we value their voice and their expertise in helping to plan for their care. We will focus heavily on the title model throughout the semester. The next one that's in the book, I think the name is, yes, Orlando. Orlando gave us the deliberative nursing process that involves the nurse assessing the patient's needs and then validating their perceptions with the patient and then developing interventions that result in therapeutic outcomes to relieve distress or the concerns and worries of the patient. And here again, you see the idea of patient goals, patient needs, and them being the primary focus, and the nurse being sensitive to take the time, <clears throat> time to ascertain them and develop interventions with those needs in mind. Now, I was thinking about an analogy for you know how we assess patient needs and make those the primary goal, and I was thinking about what would happen if I went in to buy a car. And as I go in to buy a car, I might encounter one of two types of salesmen. You could look at this as one or two types of nurses. 
I could have one salesman who could say, I just want to make a great dollar here. So I'm going to try to push you toward the biggest vehicle that's going to be one that maybe is out of your price range. You may not be able to afford it, but I'm going to make you really want that car. That salesman is not taking into account my needs. He's more concerned with meeting his own needs. And then you could go into a car dealership and somebody could sit down and they could take the time to talk to you and they could say, okay, so what are you thinking? Oh, you're not decided on a model yet. Okay, well, let's see where you are. You know, what do the finances look like? How many people are you going to need to be able to seat? What kind of gas mileage? Do you have the ability to, you know, have an electric car at your house, like a Tesla or something? Could you, you know, set that up? Oh, you live in an apartment. That may not be good since you don't have a garage. You can't charge it there. So you see that there are a number of things a salesman could take into account to direct me exactly toward the vehicle that I need. I still need his help. He's directing me toward a vehicle at the end of the day. But at the same time, he's doing it based upon what he's seen. So think about this. If we're the nurse and we come into a patient interaction, and in that patient interaction, we're like, okay, just tell me what you're here for. Let me get this over with. Let me give you this medication and send you on your way. You know, if you haven't taken the time to listen to my concerns and to understand where I'm coming from, you're probably just going to maybe slap a Band-Aid on something that's really a hemorrhage. It would be much better if you would take the time to thoroughly assess me, to listen to my needs, and to find out, yes, I have been having this problem. It's an ongoing problem. An antibiotic is not going to help because I've already been on four antibiotics, and it hasn't helped, but there's something else that's going on here that nobody's seen, and if you take the time to listen to me, you're going to see it. Now, that's kind of an over-exaggeration, I know, but at the same time, it does really illustrate the difference between someone who assesses your needs and is working to meet your needs based upon your strengths, your abilities, and what you have and what your beliefs are, as opposed to someone who just tries to move you on your way to the next step in the healthcare process. I hope we can all be the kind of nurse that takes the time to really holistically focus on our patients and meet their needs. All right, so the book goes on and talks about Newman's systems model, where she says the nurse should assess the patient status to both actual and potential stressors. She postulates that each patient has the opportunity to respond to a stressor in a different way, and the goal being homeostasis, or you know, the normal that is normal for the patient. That is the goal of each individual. She also identified categories of stressors being intra or within the individual. That's intra, within the individual. Like, for example, the individual's thoughts and feelings and beliefs. Intra, inter, I'm sorry, inter, interpersonal, which are relationships with maybe family members or friends or other communities, people in the community. And extra personal. So intra, within the individual, inter, between individuals and community together, and extra personal. That would be like an external um, event. Like, for example, if you were in the more tornado along with other people in your community as well, that is an extra personal stressor. It is something that has occurred because of the environment that has affected many times multiple people, and it is a huge stressor, but it's not something that may have been out of the control of the individual. So, within the control of the individual. Now, we also focus from Newman on the idea of primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. 
Now, in the systems model, as outlined by Newman, primary intervention focuses on keeping stressors and the stress response from having a detrimental effect on the body, and it occurs before the patient reacts to a stressor. So it include things like health promotion, maintaining wellness, you know, fitness, weight loss, you know, things that make the individual, you know, have a good defense mechanism against a stressor that might occur. Secondary prevention occurs after the patient reacts to a stressor and is is provided in terms of the existing stressor. It focuses on preventing damage to the central core by strengthening, strengthening the internal lines of resistance and removing the stressor. Tertiary prevention is another form, and it happens after the patient has been treated through secondary prevention, and it supports the patient and tries to add energy to the patient to reduce energy needed to facilitate reconstitution. So basically, you know, those, those ideas of primary, secondary, and tertiary do come from Newman, which is very important for us to understand. Um, <clears throat> so I guess that's really about all I wanted to talk to about as far as nursing theorists go. There are a couple more that are covered in your book, and I encourage you to go and to read through those. So we'll briefly look at psychological therapy, psychiatric therapies. Um, There are different forms of behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and dialectical behavioral therapy. We'll go over those those more during certain lectures of the year. There are different biomedical therapies. Um, I have already recorded a lecture on ECT therapy specifically. Please read through the other ones and read through the recovery model. So anyway, this is about where I'm going to end our lecture today. This is far too much information anyway for you to process. So I will continue to um, add content over the next few days. Most of the part that you're going to need from the first class period are already uploaded to the site. So I think we should be pretty much concluded with what you might need for the first exam from the first four chapters. I do want you to go back and review chapter two over the history of mental health and how it's progressed, but it will probably not be covered heavily on the exam. Thank you for listening.